Let's go ahead and have prayer to start off with then. <clears throat> Dear Lord, thank you for the few that are here. Thank you for the chance to be warriors for you in these last days. Grant us your wisdom as we deal with the topics uh, that concern these last day events. We commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. to do another function of eight. There we go. Okay, basically the first part we're going to talk about is why do we care? Why is this not something that's just in the, our ivory towers at the school and we make you take the course and we give you your grade and then you can go on and forget whatever you've learned. Why do we care um, about whether God did it, whether he did it in six days or six million years? Why does it matter? So why do we insist in believing in a literal biblical creation? Come on in, gentlemen. And, no, we're just now starting, actually. We're late. Um, yeah, great. You can see what little there is there. We may have to stop in the middle and move this back um, if they get an extension cord for us. But in the meantime, we'll go on as it is. So the first part we're here we're talking about is um, why do we insist as a church in believing in a literal biblical creation? Many of you may be aware of the controversy that was going on at the general conference <clears throat> because one of our Adventist schools came out, one of the faculty came out public and said that we should all be teaching evolution and so um, it was brought up at the at the general conference uh, to strengthen um, fundamental belief number six. So as a church, we do insist on a literal biblical creation. So why? Come on in, folks. Hey. Hello. Come on in. We're just starting anyway, so maybe the Lord has had things in mind to begin with here. <clears throat> the first reason that the church insists on having um, a, a, a fundamental belief that keeps us on a literal creation is that the Bible quotes God himself as saying that he created the earth and all that's in it in six 24-hour days. Where does God say that? Yeah, and no, I don't think He does. Actually, that's that's Mo Genesis says it, but Moses wrote that. Uh, I, I believe it's in Exodus, Exodus twenty. Yeah, um, I believe. Secondly, without the uh, a belief in a, a literal biblical creation. Uh, what reason can you give for having a morality? 
Um, if it's survival of the fittest, why shouldn't I find a way to knock you upside the head and take everything that you have um, and give it to my kids? Um, why shouldn't I do that? Well, of course, the Bible tells us why we shouldn't, and it gives us a morality. But without the Bible, there's no reason for, for a morality. I should just be able to lie and cheat and whatever gets me ahead. The third point is <clears throat> the last day arguments will be centered, excuse me, <clears throat> will be centered around the worship of God, the Creator and His Sabbath, or Satan, the false creator through evolution, and his spurious Sabbath Sunday. So these really are the last day events. So we're going to look in, uh, at each of these three items in a little more detail. So the Bible clearly teaches that God created the earth and all life in six 24-hour days. The author of Deuteronomy and Exodus We'll assume it's Moses. Um, go ahead, let's get it changed. The Bible um, clearly teaches that God um, created the earth and everything, all life on it in six 24-hour days. The author of Deuteronomy and Exodus, <clears throat> Moses for most of us, states that God wrote the Ten Commandments with his own finger on stone tab tablets. The fourth commandment states that God created the earth and all life on it in six days. So here are your little memory verse texts for today. When the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of the testimony, the tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. So here the author is making the claim that God wrote the Ten Commandments with his own finger in stone. This isn't about cultural understanding. This isn't about God adapting a story to a primitive people walking around the desert. This is about a claim that God wrote himself with his own finger in stone tablets that he did it in six days. He declared to you his covenant, the Ten Commandments, which he commanded you to follow, and then wrote them on two stone tablets, Deuteronomy 4, 13 and 14. Finally, the Lord wrote on these tablets what he had written before, the Ten Commandments, he had proclaimed to you on the mountain, Deuteronomy 10, 4 to 5. Now what does it mean, the tablets he had written before? He swapped them out. Yeah, Moses was going down the hill and said, oh my goodness, what are my people up to? And threw the tablets down on the ground and broke them. So God made another set. On both sets, he wrote down that he did it in six days. The fourth commandment says that God created all the earth and all life. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, for in six days the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day.
and made it holy. So to truly believe in the Bible requires accepting creation in six days. If, now here's this is if, I'm not saying this is true. If evolution is really true and life was not created in six days but rather evolved over millions of years, then there are only two possibilities in understanding the biblical statements. One, the author of Exodus and Deuteronomy is a liar. He said God wrote in stone that he created life in six days, but God didn't really write that in stone. That's if evolution is true. For those of us who believe the Bible, of course, we believe that God wrote it with stone, in stone. The second possibility is that God's not telling the truth. He wrote in stone that he created life in six days, but he really didn't. If either one of those kings, well, first of all, if somebody is lying to you in Exodus and Deuteronomy, what else in the Bible is a deliberate lie? How could you tell? And if God's lying to you, what do you care what Genesis says? You know, how do you know? I mean, how can you trust a God that would lie to you? Therefore, in order to believe the Bible as anything more than a collection of ancient myths requires accepting creation in six days. Again, if the author of Exodus lied, what else is a deliberate lie? If God's a lie, um, can be untruthful, let's say it like it is. If God's a liar, what's the point in believing the Bible at all? I don't see any way around claiming to be a Christian and yet not believing that God did it in six days. So this will bring us back then to, we're going to say that we are creationists because we believe in the Bible, we believe in a God of love, we believe in a, in a Savior that is going to bring us out of this suffering world in the near future. So what are the implications for the two belief systems, creation and evolution? What are the implications on morality? And morality is essentially the guide for how we live. So if evolution is true, if it really is true, then we should have a certain behavior related to the tenets of evolution. If the Bible is really true, then we should live according to the guidelines in the Bible. So what does the Bible say on the origin of good and evil? Originally, God created everything good. Genesis 1:31. Evil originated in heaven through Satan, so evil is real and Satan is real. Evil came to the earth through Adam. Death came through Adam also. This is an important concept um, because when we start looking at the fossil record, what are fossils? 
fossils are dead things. <laughs> dead things that are buried in the rocks. So if death came through Adam, then when did the fossils have to form? After Adam. So therefore, all of the fossil record would have to be after Adam, if the Bible is true. Evil and death will be destroyed through Christ. Evil and death were not part of God's original plan, and he will restore it. The lion and the lamb will play together, Isaiah 11 and 65. So we have a view then of the world from the Bible's point of view. Good and evil are real. <clears throat> um, Satan is real. And redemption is real. And we have a real hope for the future. Now let's look at what the evolutionary side would say, or would at least deal with. First off, we'll deal with what is evolution. And then we'll look at what are the implications for, uh, of evolution for having morality. Evolution is the attempt to explain the um, existence of life without God. Only observable, measurable information is allowed. Can you measure God? No. Can we even prove that there are angels? Do you believe in a guardian angel? No. But um, evolution cannot believe in guardian angels because only testable, measurable um, pieces of information are allowed. The existence of the supernatural is rejected because you can't test it. You can't prove it exists it's outside of our three dimensions, therefore it's outside of science. Man then is the highest intelligence that can be subjected to human manipulation, takes the place of God. So man becomes God. So what is the theory of evolution? It's based on observations. The first observation is that more young are produced each year than can survive. You go out and look and count up how many baby cardinals you see, and then you come back the next year and see how many are still alive, and you'll see that <clears throat> more are produced each year than can survive. Mutations occur that add diversity to the gene pool. I'm going to give a little caveat there, and I'm going to say that I don't know of a single mutation in vertebrates that's ever been shown to be good. All mutations that I know of break things. From those two observations, Charles Darwin made the observation that the most fit offspring will survive to leave their own offspring. Evolution is defined then as this is going to blow you away. Changes in gene frequencies through time. Wow, now that sounds um, 
pretty rigorous. But what it's really saying is that if you look around the room and you look at the percentage of people that have brown eyes versus blue eyes or whatever character you're looking for, that over a period of generations, that if blue eyes, um, it makes you unfit. And if you live in the tropics, blue eyes will make you unfit because the light of the tropics will burn your retina. <clears throat> Um, and so over time, if you're living in the tropics, you'll see blue eyes drop out because there'll be a f no fitness advantage to that. Do you all see how that works? Fitness <clears throat> is defined as the individual's number of surviving offspring. So you count your kids and that is by definition your fitness. So somebody like Brigham Young, I don't even know how many kids he had. He had 49 wives. I don't know how many kids he had. So his fitness had to be way up there. What was Christ's fitness? Zero. He had no kids. So we're saying, according to evolution, Brigham Young was far more fit than Christ was. So I'm going to use an example here of evolution that, it, that we, I would believe is a pretty good example of something that really probably did happen. You have normal red blood cells um, that circulate through the bloodstream here. Come on, this will work. There we go. Um, and they carry oxygen, lose oxygen, stay around. If you have two sickle cell genes, their structure, the structure of the red blood cell changes. And so they, they carry oxygen the first time they're made, when they come right out of the bone marrow. After they've been used once, they sickle, and, and then that's permanent. They can never get oxygen to circulate in the body again. So if you have two sickle cell genes, thank you, that is pretty fatal. Most, before modern medicine, to uh, an individual with two sickle cell genes rarely lived past 10 or 12. So what caused this? Hemoglobin is the molecule that carries the oxygen. It's a protein, and it's made of a string of amino acids. At the position of the sixth amino acid in that change, there was a mutation that changed just one amino acid. Glutamic acid was replaced with valine. Now, who cares what the name of it is? The, the, the point is you have a single mutation that substituted a single um, amino acid out of the hundred and whatever that make up hemoglobin, just one. And that made a difference in the way the molecule fold, folds and the way it could carry oxygen.
All right, so why does it get in the gene pool if it's um, so deadly? It turns out that if you live in a, an area with a high incidence of malaria, that if you have one normal gene and one sickle gene, you will be able to survive malaria because as soon as the parasite invades the cell, it sickles and the spleen filters it out. So you don't catch malaria. If you have two normal um, blood cells, two normal hemoglobin, you die of malaria. If you have two sickle cell genes, you die of sickle cell anemia. So you can see very quickly how many kids will a person with normal um, red blood cells have. Next to zero, because if he manages to have some, the kid will get malaria and die anyway. <laughs> um, so essentially, what's your fitness in high malaria areas without a sickle cell gene? It's zero. What's your fitness if you have two sickle cell genes? Zero. But if you have one of each, then you can have kids. So you can see that how having this gene in a certain condition is better than not having it. So now, is sickle cell anemia, is that trait beneficial or, or not? Now that's, that's the real question. I would argue that it's not beneficial. It's just not as bad as malaria. <laughs> um, and there's a cost to being able to breed in an area with high malaria. That cost is half of your kids. Because if, you're if one parent has one of each and the other parent has one of each, then one of their kids will have two normal one of their kids will have two sickle cell, and two of their kids will survive. So the cost of being able to survive in, in high malaria is half your kids. Is it worth it? Actually, I'd say yes, because it's better than having no kids <laughs> and, and dying. What we really hope for is for Christ's return to eradicate malaria. And then we don't need these other genes. There are all kinds of other things. I have diabetes. I, I, I believe that diabetes was a, the gene is a mutation for a population that doesn't have enough food resources. And so it's an adaptation for starvation. Your metabolism slows down um, and you're able to live when others wouldn't in low food supply. So then what happens when there's abundant food supply? You get fat and die. <clears throat> so now let's make a little chart here and look at the moral implications of these two belief systems. Biblically, good and evil are real. There's a real Satan, a real God, a real great controversy and good and evil are real. 
man's duty is to be good and overcome evil through Christ. Conserve and uh, conserve concern and love for others is fundamental. The Ten Commandments then define what good and evil are. So that means the Ten Commandments define a reality too, since we know that the Bible defines uh, that good and evil are real. The highest good you can do is to sacrifice yourself for another. Now look at evolution by natural selection changing gene frequencies. There's no such thing as good and evil, only changes in gene frequencies, only chance events. I am evolutionarily successful if my genes are passed on at the expense of other genes, which changes gene frequencies. What does that mean? That means if I have more kids that survive than you do, then the next generation will have more of my genes in it than yours. And if, and if my kids have more kids than your kids, it'll continue to shift so that the next populations will look like me. Therefore, I will be more evolutionarily fit than you are. Does everybody see that? So if evolution is true, the more of my genes that I leave at the expense of my competitors' genes, the more of an evolutionary success I am. War is good if it eliminates the genes of others, but not mine. If evolution is true, what, is, what was wrong with Saddam Hussein? What did Saddam do? He put his near kin in positions of power. Now, you share half of your genes with one parent and half with another parent. That same thing true as with a brother and a sister. You share half of your genes with each sibling. You share a quarter of your genes with your cousins, first cousins. So if you promote your near kin, that is promoting your genes. So what did Saddam do? He put his near kin in positions of power. We have Uncle um, Chemical Ali <laughs> um, and his tribe um, he put in positions of power. What did he do to the Kurds? First of all, what did he do to the Kurds? Yeah, he gassed a few, 2,000 of them, a couple thousand here, a couple thousand there. You know, who cares about Kurds, right? All they do is hold him up from getting the oil over there in Kurt, the Kurdish part of Iraq, so. And then what did he do to the Shiites? Killed a bunch of them too. What's wrong with that? If evolution is true, what did he do that was wrong? Well, what he did is he forgot to, re he didn't recognize the lion at his door. <laughs> that was his mistake. But from an evolutionary viewpoint, what did he do that was wrong? 
The more of a, uh, I am more successful if my gene frequencies increase while yours decrease. Show me in here a happiness equation. Is there any place here that says that evolution says that you'll be happy? There is no happiness equation in here, only number of kids. Because that's how you define fitness. I would make a bet. I'd like I'd love somebody to do a study. I would make a bet that male prison inmates have, an, uh, have a higher fitness <clears throat> than evangelical males do. <clears throat> doesn't matter who raises them, doesn't matter whether they're happy, doesn't matter whether they live in the ghetto, just so long as they too have lots of kids. That's, that's all that matters for evolutionists. Now, I'm not saying that any evolutionist would tell you to do this. I'm just pointing out the logical extension of where evolution would lead on morality. If fitness is true. This can happen if I can convince you to have only one wife while I have many. That's another part of war being good. You go fight over there, I'll stay home, take care of um, your family, okay? If I can sire more children, no matter who, who raises them, so long as they too live, leave many offspring, I am more fit. I'm more successful again if my gene frequencies increase while yours decrease, no matter how that happens. Matter of fact, that was actually Hitler's goal. Hitler did this on purpose. I'm not sure that Saddam did anything except out of selfish reasons. You put your kin in power, they're less likely to shoot you. <laughs> um, but Adolf Hitler was actually trying to create the pure race. Um, and somehow he f figured that that was the blonde, blue-eyed German. Now he was neither blonde, blue-eyed, nor German. Uh, um, so I never understood that. Um, he was Austrian. Uh, um, but he identified a, a, a population that was his ideal of what humanity should be. His ideal of what humanity should not be was Jewish or anybody that disagreed with him. Uh, um, and so he actually set about changing gene frequencies. He was going out, he literally murdered, I think several million Jews. I don't even know how many Jews died in the Holocaust. <laughs> um, he, huh? Six million, yeah. I mean, it's an incredible number. <laughs> um, he set up special places for his SS troopers to leave blonde, blue-eyed genes. Uh, um, and he was literally going to change gene frequencies. What was wrong with that, if evolution is true? What was wrong with that is a bunch of Christian soldiers came in and found what he did, and they weren't happy about it. <laughs> um, it's because Hitler was wrong. There is a God. Uh, um, there are good and evil angels and they affect the outcome of history.
So Christian morality is good for you because it limits the expansion of your gene frequencies, but not for me because I want my frequencies to increase at the expense of yours. If there really is no such thing as good and evil, why pretend there is? I know of no evolutionist, personally, that would argue that, that there was no such thing as evil. I'm not saying that they would um, preach this. But I would ask them to define how they know what evil is. <clears throat> we know how e what evil is because the, the Bible defines it for us. It tells us what's good and bad. If you didn't have that, how do you know what's, what's good and what's evil according to evolution? Strictly speaking, if, if all evolution is about is survival of the fittest, then we ought to doggone well be the fittest. <clears throat> so why not be the fittest? However, if the Bible is true, good and evil are real and are the result of choices that we make. I'm biblically more successful if I give what I have to my competitor. I'm even more successful if I lay down my life for another. Can you see how opposite these two worldviews are? One says, everything for me, go die. The other one says, I will die in your place. I will let you have what's mine. If, if you ask me, if you want to steal my hat, what do I do? Or have I got it backwards? If you want to steal my coat, what do I do? Give me my hat as well, right? <laughs> um, so the behavioral implications of these two um, worldviews couldn't be more opposite. Oops. So the moral implications, that's just what I said, they couldn't be more opposite in their practical applications. If we're gonna be, call ourselves Christian, then we have to believe that God created the earth in six days, right? If we're gonna accept that, then we have to accept the whole Bible or else somebody's lying to you. And that whole Bible tells you that you're better off to help your brother in any way you can, even up to dying for him. Evolution, on the other hand, says, hey, you silly Christians, why are you following a 2,000-year-old ancient mythology? Why aren't you up to date on science? Why don't you know that evolution is real? Well, if that's true, let me kill you and take your stuff, and then we'll live happily ever after. It isn't true. And we, um, we often make a mistake. I want to point this out, too. It's not a mistake, really, but we focus on heaven. We all want to go there. I want to go there. Who doesn't want to live where it's happily ever after? You know? Oh, no pain. No broken neck. What a joy. But what Christianity is really about 
is changing lives today. It's about helping other people today. When Christ comes back, what does he ask of his people? Did you understand the state of the dead? Did you understand hell? No. He says, did you feed the hungry? Did you clothe the naked? Did you visit those that were in prison? What does that mean? Did you hope for heaven? No, yes, you hope for heaven, but in the meantime, you feed the hungry, you clothe the naked, you visit the, those that are in prison. That's what Christian behavior is about, changing how we live today. So this boils down to the creation evolution debate that you never hear on TV. You never hear on TV why if evolution is true, you should be the best cheater possible. Now you're not gonna go out and kill somebody because they'll, they'll put you away, you know? <laughs> You'll f try and figure out ways to be the best cheater. So what's evil in evolution, there's only one thing evil in evolution and that's getting caught. <laughs> because getting caught involves a penalty. I guess it's time that I let you out of here. Let's go through creation and last day events real quick. <clears throat> what does the creation evolution debate have to do with last day events? Evolution attacks God's identity as creator. Worthy are you, O Lord, and our God to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things and because of your will, they existed and were created. Revelation 4. Fear God and give him glory, for the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and the springs of waters. We concentrate on the third angel's message, and well, we should. But the last day event is also about the first angel's message. Who are you going to worship? Are you going to worship God who made you or Satan who made up evolution? And then, of course, evolution attacks the foundation of Sabbath. The last thing I want to point out to you that I hadn't heard before <clears throat> Let's look at creation in the Laodicean church. The messages of the seven churches of the book of Revelation are given by Jesus to John directly. <clears throat> we have historically believed that the seven churches, in addition to being real churches that, that the letter went to, represent the history of the church through time. <coughs> In each message, Jesus identifies himself in a different way. To the angel of the church of Smyrna write, these things saith the first and the last who was dead and came to life. And the angel of um, Thyatira write, these, are, these things says the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire. 
And what does he say to the Laodicean church? To the angel of the church of Laodicea write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Worship God. The Laodicean message is about the beginning of the creation of God, Jesus Christ. Let's go ahead and take a 10-minute break. We're going to um, talk, well, let's see if we can do it in seven minutes. <clears throat> we'll begin um, our talk on these um, fossil ape men and how do we understand them as creationists. If, since we've shown that if we're going to believe the Bible, it requires believing in creation in six days, then how do we understand these fossil hominids that you see? See you back at three o'clock. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.